Welcome to First Presbyterian Church in North Palm Beach, Florida. We exist to help people pursue and share gospel-driven lives. We hope whether you're investigating faith, a seasoned follower of Jesus, and anywhere in between, this podcast helps you connect with Jesus. We're beginning today a new series we'll be in through the Advent and Christmas seasons called The Hopes and Fears of all the years. We're going to be listening to a number of texts from the prophet Isaiah in the Hebrew scriptures that point us to the hope of Jesus over the next weeks. So today's scripture reading is going to be from Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1 to 5. I'm going to pray for us as we prepare to listen to God's word and then we'll listen to the text together. So pray with me if you would. Make us to know your ways, O Lord. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the one for whom we wait. We ask this through Christ our salvation, in whose name we pray. Amen. Friends, listen now to God's word from Isaiah 2. The word that the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah. And Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge the nations, and arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 1865, Phillips Brooks who was serving as the time as the rector or the, or the senior pastor of a church called the Church of the, of the Holy Trinity, uh, which hugs the northwest corner of Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia. He took a trip to Israel and Palestine. And while he was there, he went on horseback the few miles from the city of Jerusalem south to the town of Bethlehem. And while in Bethlehem, in December 1865, he participated in and led a midnight worship service by candlelight in the church that's built on the spot, according to history and tradition and our best guess, where we think that Jesus of Nazareth was born. Brooks was so deeply moved by this experience, that he went on to, to write a poem about it. 
here's how that little poem that he wrote went. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy sleep, sweet and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in their darkness shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Put to music, it became, of course, one now one of the most famous Christmas carols in the world, a little town of Bethlehem. If you're somebody who's grown up in a church background, you've likely sung that song for years and years. Even if you're somebody who's relatively unfamiliar with Christian faith, you've likely heard that song in Target or sung by Mariah Carey or on a holiday season truck commercial or something like that here or there. I love that carol because in a single line, Brooks distills the essence of what followers of Jesus for millennia have experienced. That the deep longings and desires of humanity, the deep aches of the human spirit for justice, for peace, for home, for spiritual reality, all of these, they cohere and are fulfilled in the person of Jesus, the infant born in that little town south of Jerusalem. We're going to, over the next weeks, be exploring together these great hopes as we listen to texts from the Hebrew prophet Isaiah, which articulate these hopes that point us to Jesus. I wonder, I wonder if you'd puzzle with me for how you think about that word hope. What do you really mean by it? A young mother looks at her colicky baby in the early hours of the morning while it's pitch black outside, takes a look at the alarm clock, which keeps clicking ever closer toward the beginning of the next day, looks back at that baby and says to herself, I hope that this child will sleep tonight. Your doctor called you in for a second visit and then sent away for, for some secondary testing. And you're waiting for it to turn up any day. And you say to yourself in a quiet moment as you, as you wait for those results, I hope that I'm going to be okay. A few weeks ago after the Phillies lost their final game in the World Series, somebody right out here in the lobby said, I hope the Phillies make it to the World Series next year, Pastor Jared. What do we mean when we say things like that? What we mostly mean is, I wish that that was going to happen, but I don't think that it actually will. It's true, isn't it? Followers of Jesus, though, we mean something more strong and energetic when we talk about hope, and when we talk about cultivating hope. This is the season of the year in which the Christian community cultivates the virtue of hope. We stand, as it were, between God's arrivals in the world in Jesus. We look, on the one hand, behind us to how God has come among us in Jesus, 
2,000 years ago, and then we look ahead in hope at God's promise that he will one day arrive in the world again in Jesus to make all things new. And so, in this season of the year, we cultivate, we cultivate the practice of hope together. We're going to begin doing that today as we listen together to Isaiah's great vision in the second chapter of the book that bears his name. This is a vivid vision of God's promised tomorrow, of God's great promise that on the last day he will remake and heal the world and creation that he loves. And so I want to invite you for a few moments together with me to to simply look at that dazzling vision with me, that vision of our great tomorrow, and then to reflect a little bit about how that shapes how we live today. I want to invite you to ponder those two horizons. The tomorrow that's in this text, and then the today. Isaiah here invites us to to hear what he hears and see what he sees. The first verse of the text that we heard together describes what follows as the word that Isaiah sees. It absorbs all of our senses, both sight and sound. This is a prophetic vision of of God's great tomorrow in the words of of the passage of the days to come. Isaiah here is giving us a bracing picture of the creator's promised future in which he will one day heal his creation and regather his worldwide family. At the center of it is the mountain of the Lord. This is a reference to Mount Zion the mountain on which the city of Jerusalem was built. If you've ever been there, you know that this particular mountain isn't overly impressive. It's not like Mount Kilimanjaro or Mount Everest or something like that. It's the center of this image because it's the place of of the Lord's house. This is the way that the Hebrew scriptures referred to the temple. The temple in the Hebrew imagination in the Hebrew scriptures is where, is where heaven and earth, God's dimension of reality and our dimension of reality, is where they overlap and interlock, where God's presence is available in the world. And so this picture of God gathering many nations, all kinds of peoples together, is a picture of him gathering together a rescued human family of every color and background and origin, into his presence in joy forever, and bringing them once and for all into a good and flourishing way of life. Notice that this vision is is not not just for the Jewish people, not just for people that look like them or look like us. This is a this is a vision of many peoples, all nations, in the words of Isaiah. Many peoples are streaming to God. Nations, many peoples are gathering joyfully together around God. And it's a picture of a world finally at peace. A world, in the words of Isaiah, in which nation has stopped lifting up sword against nation. Now, when we use that word peace, we tend to use it in a rather thin and flimsy fashion we mean mostly ceasefire when we say that or or it's a casual way to say hello or goodbye peace good to see you 
But the Hebrew prophets mean something much more full-blooded and bold when they talk about peace or the word shalom in, in that language that we translated. It's a picture of a world that's put right again, of a day when re- restorative justice triumphs, when truth prevails, when all the wrongs in the world are one day put right. I love how one particular theologian named Cornelius Plantinga puts what, what the Bible means when it talks about a world of shalom. I want to listen, I want to invite you to listen to what he says. He says this, He says, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than just peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, all under the arch of God's love. Shalom, in other words, is the way things are supposed to be. I love that. This is what God is promising, is our ultimate future, wholeness, flourishing, delight, that one day things will be the way they're supposed to be. Isaiah depicts this as a day in which weapons of war would be put to new use, in which people would actually forget how to fight each other, how to harm each other. He's picturing a day in which we would stop devising ways to blow each other up more and more efficiently. When I read these words, I always think about the experience that I had as a child of being drug along to go antiquing with my parents. My parents, when I was young, they enjoyed antiquing, and so there was many a Saturday morning when I and my two younger brothers would be drugged with my parents as they go to to this or that garage sale or to a flea market or to an antique shop. And they'd, they'd be nosing around, and then they'd showed me some object that I had no idea what it was or what it, what it did. And they knew that that was something that, you know, a hundred years ago farmers used to scrape mud from their boots or this is something that you use to shear sheep or something like that. But I'd stare at it and say, say to my parents as I looked up at my mom and my dad, what in the world is this thing? What was this for? That's what my children say to me now when they see something like a, like a VCR or a DVD player. The prophet Isaiah promises that there's going to be a day in which we'll look at the the machete, the M16, the drone missile system, and say, what do people use this stuff for? This is the great day of shalom that God promises is our tomorrow. Now, I I want to acknowledge that, I think especially if you're somebody for whom you wouldn't call yourself a, a follower of Jesus or, or you're just dipping your toe back in the water after a long time of being away from faith or church, that especially during this time of year, I think the Christian story can oftentimes feel like, can feel like you know, wishful thinking, like hope against hope, like something that you can't really take seriously if you're, a, if you're an educated, grown-up Western person. 
oftentimes we, th- we think about, we just assume Christianity is an exercise in, in wish fulfillment. Uh, Karl Marx classically said this. He was a 20th century philosopher that coined the phrase of, of religion being like an opiate to people. Here's, here's, how he, here's how he says this. He says, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. I know that that's a, that's a way that people oftentimes perceive the Christian story. But if that's, if that's how you think about what the Christian story is, I want to turn that around and invite you to consider what happens in your life when your vision of where the world is going and where your life is going within it is nothing, more or less. What happens then? On the one hand, if your life is affluent and comfortable and easy, what happens is boredom. And on the other hand, if your life is desperate or difficult or painful, what happens is despair. Think about the, think about the classic play from the theater of the absurd, Waiting for Godot, that Samuel Beckett wrote in the middle of the 20th century. The two chief characters in that play, Vladimir and Estragon, they, they pitifully, through the course of the play, they wait for hope to arrive, and in its absence, they spend their time struggling to uh, fulfill their, fill their boredom and to avert ultimate despair and, and ending their own lives. That's what happens in your life when your vision of tomorrow is nothing. But the question still stays with us. How do you, in a world of typhoons and terrorists, how do, you, how do you take this kind of hope seriously? How do you take the kind of hope pictured in the scriptures seriously in your life? In a word, here's how the scriptures would tell you you can take that hope seriously. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus as we watch the story of God's work unfold in the scriptures, is this great future breaking into our divided, conflicted, bleeding, present world in person. You see, God would come among us in Jesus and experience life in an unjust and conflicted and violent world. Jesus would know what it is to be a human being in that kind of world. Jesus on Mount Zion, outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem, he would die a victim of injustice on an instrument of death in order to bring new life and new hope to the whole world, to show God's way, to be God's word to a violent and dark world. And in Jesus rising from the dead, God would show us a picture of our great future right here in the middle of our today. Many of the New Testament authors, in talking about Jesus, they talked about him as the temple in person. See, where we can find God's presence thanks to Jesus is no longer a place, but a person, a human being. That's why if if you were with us in worship last week as we reflected on the death of Jesus, one of the things that the, the gospel writers tell us is that at the death of Jesus, the curtain of the temple was ripped into. The idea is that now, thanks to Jesus, you and I and the whole world can be regathered 
in the presence of the God that we're made for. And this is why Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, when he writes a letter to a, a young church community who's trying to hang on to hope in their own lives, he says to them, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope. In other words, Christian hope isn't just hope against hope. Christian hope, because of Jesus, is hope with a backbone. Hope standing on solid ground. And so, as the vision of Isaiah tells us, as followers of Jesus, we live our lives today. We teach children and live with our spouses and serve our neighbors today in light of that great promised tomorrow that God has shown us in Jesus. How does the, how does the text that we listen to finish? After this great vision of a healed world, finally at peace, Isaiah says, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's live our lives today in light of that tomorrow. So if you're a follower of Jesus, there's one way in which your whole life is Advent. Because our whole lives as followers of Jesus, we live between God's arrivals among us. When God came among us in Jesus, and when God has promised to come among us again to make all things new. One of my favorite preachers is a woman named Fleming Rutledge, and I love how she puts this dynamic. This quote is on the reflections page on the front of your worship folder. She says, in a very deep way, the entire Christian life in this world is lived in Advent, between the first and second comings of the Lord, in the midst of the tension between things the way they are and things the way they ought to be. So I want to simply close by, by asking you to consider, as we take this dazzling vision of our tomorrow with us back into our normal lives, what could it look like for you to, to take steps into the light of this hope in your life today, this week? I want to suggest, you know, if you're somebody for whom you, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or, or you've been away from, from faith for a long time, you know, maybe that looks like listening a little bit more deeply to those longings that stir beneath the waterline of your life and seeing if they don't make sense in Jesus. And for, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, that are a part of this community, that means learning to, learning to live this hope, learning to practice the peace of Jesus right now in the middle of a dark and violent moment that we call our present day world. The world needs people practicing this vision. This came home to me just watching the news over the last days. You know, if you, <coughs> excuse me, if you watched the news, you saw a week and a half ago, a University of Virginia student in Charlottesville opened fire on his classmates returning from a bus trip from D.C. and killed three of them. You saw this past week, a a Walmart overnight supervisor, go buy a gun, write a note of grievances against his co-workers, and then go and open fire and kill six of them before he turned the gun on himself. You saw last weekend a man burst into Club Q and LGBT nightclub in Colorado Springs and 
wearing military body armor, open fire and kill five people and injure scores more people before he was finally subdued. We, we live in a world that desperately needs this vision. And the easy response when you, when you see things like that is to say, man, there are some really dark, wicked, terrible people out there in the world somewhere. The Christian response is to know that all those same, all those same ugly instincts, they also live inside of me as well too. And to begin here and now, to turn myself to practice the peace of Jesus, to practice the hope of Jesus, to practice forgiveness, reconciliation, to live by this hope right now in, in our dark and divided and violent present. I'll close by telling you I saw a stunning picture of this about a month ago. I was in London for a couple of days and happened into the British Museum while I was there and in one of the gallery rooms, there stands this immense metal statue of a tree, which as I learned about the piece, came to learn that it was a piece of art called the Tree of Life. It was, it was built by four artists from the country of Mozambique in Africa. They endured in their country a long and bloody civil war that was uh, that was financed and aided by, by a number of different world superpowers and countries that saw more than a million casualties over a number of years. And at the close of that war, there was a Christian leader in Mozambique named Bishop Denise Singualane, who led an effort in which wound up being more than 600,000 people, gave up, uh, gave up weapons that they had in their home and, and person and those were decommissioned, and then this set of four artists then used the materials of all of those decommissioned guns to forge this immense metal tree, which is a rendering of the tree of life in the Bible. As I stood there and wondered at this stunning piece of work, it occurred to me that this is a, this is a picture of what Jesus does for the world. Jesus suffers on an instrument of violent death and turns it into a means of new life and hope for the whole world. And that's the vocation that Jesus invites us to as well in the lives that we live. So friends, may you as followers of Jesus, may you live your today in light of that great promised tomorrow. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for joining us at FPC. For more info and to connect with us, check out www.firstpresnpb.org.